we've started a new series by asking a question, hopefully, maybe a series of questions. How is the faith to be passed on to the next generation? And to accomplish this series, we will study Paul's letters to Timothy. I want to make it clear, if I haven't, in the first two sermons in this series, that I don't think Paul wrote these letters with the question of how to pass the faith on to the next generation. Instead, he was instructing Timothy and the people who are reading the letter over his shoulder, so to speak, how it is that the people of God are to behave, particularly in light of the fact that there are false teachers in the church in Ephesus. False teaching and wrong behavior are emerging in that situation. Paul's directions or his instructions to Timothy provide for us, I think, a series of principles that can guide us and help us answer the question, how are we to keep the faith alive and how are we to pass it on to the next generation? You may remember that in the first chapter, Paul jumps right in. If you look at chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The first principle that we have seen in this series is that the church, the body of Christ, those called by God, may have among them people who behave badly and who believe wrongly. At this point in the letter, Paul is dealing with wrong belief. But later in the letter, he will get to the issue of bad behavior. Both of these mark false teachers. We saw this when we went through Second Peter. But we need to remember this, and we need to convey this to those who are younger than us, those who will be the next generation of the church, that the church is made up of imperfect people. I think, as I've said before, for many, if not most, their view of the church is it's sort of us versus them. It's the church, the good guys versus the world, the bad guys. And at a certain point, a crisis may emerge in which a person who believes in the gospel finds out that not everyone in the world is bad and not everyone in the church acts as they should. As I've said before, I can't help but wonder how many young people could have avoided a crisis of faith if they had been told this earlier in their life, that Listen, not everyone in church does what they're supposed to do, and not everyone believes as they should. The question is, well, if you tell the children that, if you tell the younger people that, won't they then get paranoid and be suspicious of everyone? Um, I don't think necessarily that that's the case. The church is made up of imperfect people. We need to pass this on to the next generation. We need to remind ourselves of this. Incapable, or imperfect people are capable of behaving badly and believing wrongly. We all are capable of doing that. So one reason why we stay together, or we should stay together as a congregation, to keep us from behaving and believing in a wrong way, but in fact that we would behave and believe as we should. How is it that people get off track? How is it that they begin to behave badly or believe wrongly? Well, I believe that Paul presents in the first chapter at least two ways. And both are seen in connection with the command. If you look at verse number five of chapter one, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love is to come from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. But as Paul puts it in the next verse, verse number six, Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. Some have wandered away from that love. They've wandered, I would say, through carelessness. And we should not imagine that such carelessness exists only 
when people commit certain sins. I think there is that. Or when they drift away from church and we don't see them as often as we should. I believe that is also a real possibility. Or that they do not keep in contact. They fail to communicate with other Christians. I absolutely would agree that that is a possibility. But I would add add that sometimes we wander away from love while in the midst of God's people, while standing up for that which is right. We must take care and remember that we are all susceptible to wandering away from love for God and love for our neighbor. Some may leave by conscious choice, and we saw that at the end of chapter 1. That is, something becomes much more important to them than loving God or loving their neighbor. And here you can imagine a number of possibilities. Their reputation becomes more important than loving their neighbor. Their position, their financial status. Um, On some level, I think that this is also the result of carelessness. That is, that someone who rejects, who consciously rejects the truth does not realize that they have slowly but surely carelessly drifted away from the truth. He or she might even imagine that they are standing up for what is right. But in leaving the love that is commanded, they leave the faith. We saw last week in verses 12 through 17 that Paul gives a brilliant summary of the graciousness of God as found in the gospel and in his own life. And we saw a corollary to this first principle, that is, we are the children of God because of his grace. (coughs) Some of us who were raised in Christian homes might almost envy those who have lived terrible lives. I mentioned this last week. And they can stand up and give a testimony to the wonder of God's grace in their lives. Um, We might want to say like Paul that I am the worst of sinners. If you look at verse number 15, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But as I mentioned last week, I point out, you notice he uses the present tense. He doesn't say, I was the worst sinner. I lived a terrible life and then God saved me and now here I am. But he says, I am the worst. Paul is both, I think, has both an overwhelming sense of his own sinfulness and utter helplessness before God, as well as the fact of God's grace that has just been super, in a super way, abundantly poured out on him. It's been lavished on him in such a tremendous way that God has loved him in spite of his sin. This is the gospel for each one of us. So, the first principle to review is that the church, the body of Christ, those called by God, may have people that behave badly and believe wrongly. Or put it another way, the church is made up of people who are in need of God's grace. Not merely in the past, but in the present as well as in the future. Today we come to the second chapter of First Timothy, which will guide us. But if you're familiar at all with this passage, it presents its share of difficulties. I'll read through the chapter and then we will study it together. Beginning in verse number one. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all men, 
the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Yes. Uh, what principles might we gain from this passage? I'll suggest two as we go through this. But I want to begin by pointing out that what Paul is saying to Timothy and the others in this letter can be seen in two things in this chapter. In the first seven verses, the proper objects of prayer, who we are to pray for, and in verses 8 to 15, the proper demeanor, the proper behavior in prayer. That is, Paul is telling Timothy who they should pray for and what is the right behavior in prayer. Let's begin at verse number 1. You may have noticed the word then sort of inserted there. Other translations have therefore. And in either case, you see that Paul is now making a point here in chapter 2 based on what he said in chapter 1. And I think that's really important. But before we get to that, you will notice that he also uses the word urge as he used in chapter 1, verse number 3. And what does Paul urge? Look again at verses 1 and 2. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. I think that Paul's use of, of first, as first of all, doesn't mean that this is the most important thing to be discussed. But it is important. It is of urgency. And he is writing this, particularly chapter 2, but I think the whole letter, it is to correct more than it is to instruct. That is to say, they are already praying, so he doesn't need to tell them to pray, but he needs to correct how, in fact, they are praying. Two questions might come up if you look at these first seven verses. Um, is Paul speaking of private prayer or public worship? I want to be careful of making too close a distinction. Um, that is, the way that we pray in public should not differ radically from what we say in private, even though in private we may say things that are quite private, and so that might be a distinction. But uh, having said all that, I think Paul is in fact talking about public worship. Because if you look at chapter 3, um, we find two verses that we might have preferred to have at the beginning of the book, um, verses 14 and 15. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The purpose of this letter, in part, is to tell people how they are to behave in church. So when we go back to chapter 2 and he's talking about prayer, I think he's talking about public prayer, when we pray in public worship. The second question that might come up is from verse number 1. Why does Paul use four different words for prayer? Request, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. 
for some people, they've made quite a study of this. Um, I think that we need to be careful that we don't get distracted by this. I don't think it is all the different kinds of prayer that we should pray. His point is who we should pray for, and that is everyone, kings, all those in authority. If you think about it, this fits in with the command found in chapter 1, verse 5. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. If we are to love our neighbors, does it not stand a reason that we would pray for them in every possible way? Prayers, requests, intercession, and thanksgiving. We are to pray for these people. We are to love them. We are to pray for them. And why are we to pray for them? Well, Paul gives us two reasons. That we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. For the believers in Ephesus, this was not theoretical. This was not some abstract idea. In Acts 8, uh, 19, we are told of a, a, a major riot that occurred in response to Paul's preaching. Because uh, Ephesus was the center of the worship of Diana or Artemis. And he was sort of putting people out of business who made images of Diana. And so there was this great riot and there was, in fact, a political figure who was approached to make a judgment. Um, the possibility of the government turning against them was very real. So Paul's urging them to pray for those in authority, I think, meant something. But some have objected, particularly modern scholars, that this really sounds very bourgeois, very selfish. Um, why would you say you need to pray so that things will be calm so that we can have, you know, good lives? Well, you may remember that Paul is writing to correct. He's correcting through Timothy the elders who are teaching bad doctrine and are behaving badly. In chapter 3, at the end of the qualifications for an elder, he says he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In other passages, he speaks of behaving correctly so as not to bring discredit on the gospel. I do not think what Paul is saying here is we should pray for people in authority so that we can have a life free from trouble or distress, a hassle-free life. We should pray for the mayor, for the police officers, for our president, our senators, so that things will go well with us. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Rather, it is we should live our lives in such a way that no one will be able to speak evil of the name of God in our teaching. Paul taught this to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, I, I do find it interesting, if you look at verse number 2, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Um, the words that Paul uses here he doesn't use elsewhere in his writings. It's, it's quite unusual. The first word, godliness, speaks of your proper conduct, and as does holiness. What he's talking about is behavior that can be observed. So we are to pray so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives and live lives that people can see are proper, that our conduct, in fact, is proper. If Paul were speaking about our relationship to God, he might say righteousness and then use the normal word for holiness, speaking of our personal relationship with God. He's not talking about that at all. He says we should pray for everyone 
so that we can live lives of appropriate behavior. The second reason why we should pray this way is because this is good and pleasing to God. And in verses 3 through 7, although Paul is giving us a reason why we are to do this, um, he in fact brings the gospel to the forefront. But perhaps in a way that is not familiar to many. We're so used to hearing it in a particular way. What Paul tells us in verses 3 through 7 can be summarized as follows. God is the source of salvation. God our Savior. That salvation is not limited to one group or ethnicity who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And then at the end, a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. So this isn't just for a particular group of people. And when he says he wants all men to be saved, this is not something just for the Jews or just for the people in Ephesus. This is for all nationalities, all ethnicities. And then he says that Jesus is the mediator between God and humanity. And is not prayer the subject here? So as we pray to God, it is Jesus who is the mediator, the one who mediates between us and God. And it is Jesus who has made this salvation possible Again, a salvation that is not limited to a specific group of people. And I think oftentimes with false teachers, and I think in this case in in Ephesus, that's precisely what they are doing. Suddenly, instead of the gospel being preached to all people, it's only supposed to be for a specific group of people. The elite, if you wish. The people they have selected, rather than we are to preach the gospel to all people. And so Paul says in verse number seven, for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Taking all of what we've seen thus far together, I come up with a second principle for keeping the faith alive and passing it on to the next generation. It is this. We are not to think in terms of us versus them. We are to pray for everyone, and the gospel is to be shared with everyone. And here I'm reminded of James' sermon um, and the issues he brought up. I, I, I think a part of the solution is that the church needs, in fact, to embrace the reality that we are to pray for everyone. Let's just stop and let's without getting overly personal, but just let's talk politics. The people you vote for, the people you didn't vote for, the people who are in authority right now. Do we pray for these people? Paul tells us very specifically that we are to pray for them in every way possible. But do we do that? The people that we dislike or people who sort of rub us the wrong way, do we pray for them in every way possible? We are, in fact, to love our neighbor as ourself. And because we love them out of a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith, we are, in fact, to pray for them in every way possible. And we are to remember that the gospel is to be shared with everyone because we are all sinners. We're all in the same boat together. For those of you who are parents, the time may come when you will want to protect your child from the dangers of the world. You don't want them exposed to certain things. I don't see anything wrong with that. But then the tendency is to think of us versus them. And that we are all good and they are all bad. 
and the time may come when your child will realize well, that that's not quite right. That within the congregation there are people who believe as they should not or behave as they should not. And out there, there's some, some fairly good people who do amazing things. If we do this, we fail to remember that God's work of redemption begins with the church and then is to move out into the world. If we're not careful, we will end up just like Israel in the Old Testament, who isolated themselves from the world because they were special. They were the chosen ones. They did not share God's law, the good news, if you wish, of how God wanted people to live. They kept it to themselves. But then, ironically, in the process, they became more like the world than one could have ever imagined. In trying to protect, perhaps, the next generation from the world, we end up becoming like the world. Remember, we are the people of God. We are the children of God because of God's grace. And everyone, including us, is in need of God's grace. In some way, this should destroy the barrier that we might try to erect between us and them. As though we, we have it and they don't, without recognizing that we are in need of God's grace, they are in need of God's grace, and we are to love these people and we are to pray for them. We should recognize that all people, regardless of status, are in need of God's grace. I don't know if you've ever fallen into this trap where you you meet a nice person, someone you really get along with, and you think to yourself, you know, it would really be nice if God saved that person. Um, When we do this, we fail to recognize that every person is in need of God's grace which God is the source. Jesus gave his life to pay the price, the ransom for that salvation. And so the principle is that we should, in fact, not separate ourselves in terms of us versus them, but we are to love them and we are to pray for them. Some of you have probably been waiting till I get to the, the second half of the chapter because that's the interesting stuff, isn't it? what Paul has to say about women. Um, Paul's still writing about prayer, by the way, and the proper behavior of public prayer. This includes, in my opinion, prayer without anger or disputing, prayer that is marked by modesty, decency, and propriety, and prayer that is marked by submission. The first one is mentioned with regard to men, and the next two with regard to women. But I would suggest to you that they apply to all of God's people. I mean, do you think that only men are to pray? Do you think that only women are to be modest and decent and have propriety? That men, in fact, can be immodest? They can be indecent and lack propriety? I don't think so. Should a man be clothed with good deeds? Is it acceptable for a man um, to learn but not in quietness and not in submission? Not at all. By the way, in case you missed it, women are seen as fully capable of learning and worshiping God, seen in verse number 10. Therefore, women are a very important part of public worship. So what about the other stuff? The stuff that sort of rubs us the wrong way. 
I would just point something out, first of all, about verse number eight. Paul uses the word everywhere. And here, I don't think he's talking universally. He's talking about all the churches in Ephesus, all the house churches. Because in Paul's other writings, when he means all the churches in the world, he says so. And he doesn't say so here. When he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over men, I don't believe that he is giving a command for all churches everywhere in all times, but he's talking about the churches in Ephesus. He does give biblical support for what he writes. But this passage, as with what precedes it, is not instructional, it is correctional. He is trying to correct the problem that is going on in the Ephesian church. And if we don't understand the distinction between instruction and correction, I think we will end up misunderstanding what Paul is saying. Another example of a correctional passage is found in 1 Corinthians 14, which also deals with women. Uh, Two verses I just want to read quickly, verses 34 and 35. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their husbands, their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, if you take 1 Corinthians 14 here with 1 Timothy 2, then you've got sort of a slam dunk that women aren't supposed to say anything. They're supposed to be in submission. Men are in charge. Women, please be quiet. But stop and think a minute. Paul writes that if a woman wants to ask something, she should ask her own husband when she gets home. What if she doesn't have a husband? Precisely. Paul is writing to a specific group of women who are married, who are disrupting the church in Corinth, and he tells them, ladies, stop interrupting public worship and wait till you get home to ask your husbands whatever questions you might have. So, Paul is not writing, these are the way, this is the way all women are to act in all churches in all time. He is speaking to a very specific group of women who are disrupting public worship. And as we will see as we go through 1 Timothy, there is in fact a real problem of sexual immorality that is coming to the church uh, in Ephesus because these false teachers are getting gullible young widows to do whatever it is that they want. And so Paul is not writing to instruct, he is writing to correct. Things in the Ephesian churches have gotten out of hand and therefore he writes what he writes. Paul does not hate women as he's been accused of. Rather, he calls on Christian women to continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. And this is seen in childbearing. Um, Now, one of the issues that comes up, and by the way, there are scholars who would tell you there's no way Paul wrote 1 Timothy because of this passage, uh, that that Paul would never say such a thing. Um, That's one of the problems. It seems to contradict what he writes elsewhere specifically about the roles of women. We are told of Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife team. Uh, Interesting enough, I say husband and wife, but it's actually the wife who is generally mentioned first. Very unusual in the ancient world. It's always the husband who's mentioned first, uh, and then the wife. They were both teachers. They taught uh, Apollos. And as I said, uh, Priscilla is normally mentioned first. In Romans 16, Paul greets people in the church in Rome, And he gives a list of names. 
And among these names, we find women mentioned. I find it fascinating that most English translations try to downgrade the position of women. So the first two verses, he deals with Phoebe. Um, He refers to her in Greek as a deaconess. But in English translations, she becomes a servant. Somehow we don't want her to have the position of deaconess. Then he mentions Priscilla, Mary, Junia, who is described, he calls her outstanding among the apostles. Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, my dear friend, the beloved Persis, uh, the ESV has, the mother of Rufus, Paul says, who is other, also like a mother to me, Julia, the sister of Nereus and Olympus. Now, I'm not suggesting that these women were teachers in the church or even officers in the church. I would suggest that they were not silent in the church. So what is the principle here? What is it that we can take from this that we are to pass on to the next generation? Four words. Read the whole story. If I were to ask most Christians, if I were to say to them, do you believe the Bible? Show of hands. People would raise their hands. Yes, we believe the Bible. And if I would say to them, do you believe all of the Bible? Some might become more enthusiastic, perhaps some less, but I think still generally a positive response. But if I were then to ask a third question, have you read the Bible? Then I think the response would change. I suspect that the response would not be as positive. The passage today, as with many in Scripture, makes it clear that we need to read the whole story. We're not finished with 1 Timothy. There are other things that need to be said. We don't know the whole story. And even when we're done with 1 Timothy, we won't know the whole story, but we'll have a better, under, a better sense of the context of what is being said. I know that the Bible is difficult at times. And in reading and in studying scripture, we are to look to the Spirit of God to give us understanding and insight. But we need to read the whole thing. We need to read the whole story in order to have a better understanding of what is written. Otherwise, if one takes 1 Timothy 2 verses 8 through 15, you could in fact have a slam dunk case that women are to not do anything in the church at all. It is men who are in charge and women are only to be silent. In my opinion, the current generation of Christians, at least in this country, are almost totally illiterate when it comes to the Bible. We say we believe the Bible. We believe that God has revealed himself in Scripture. This is the special revelation of God. And yet, most Christians have never read it. If we are to keep the faith alive, and if we are going to pass it on to the next generation, we need to read and know the whole story. I credit my mother with this, um, by God's grace. She gave me a real appreciation for the Old Testament. And yet, as I get older, I am dismayed, appalled 
at how little most Christians today know about the Old Testament. The Old Testament, these are the metaphors. These are the images that are used in the New Testament. What Gia read to us today from Psalm 105 is a retelling of the story of Exodus. If you don't know the story of Exodus, you won't understand Psalm 105. So in order for us to understand the New Testament, we need to read the Old Testament. We need to read the whole story. Otherwise, someone will come along and will take a verse from here and a verse from there and create something. And we say, well, sounds pretty convincing to me. First Corinthians 14, first Timothy 2. Women are not to speak at all, to be seen and not heard. There you go. When in fact, that is only a partial reading and you need to read the whole story. So, principles for keeping the faith alive and passing it on to the next generation. First of all, that the church, the people of God, those called by God, have may have within their midst those who behave badly, those who believe wrongly. We are the children of God because of God's grace. We should never forget that. The second principle, which we saw today, we are not to think in terms of us versus them. We are to love our neighbor as ourself, out of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. We are to pray for everyone. And we are to understand that the gospel, the good news, is to be shared with everyone. This is, if you wish, the pilot project. God's redemption begins in the church, but it is then to go out into the world. In the Philippines, at least traditionally, whenever it's time to plant rice, rice is planted in a very small section of the field with seed. And then when they reach a certain height, they're taken out and they're transplanted by hand. It's back-breaking work. But I see that as an, an image of what the church is supposed to be, that here we are on Sunday, if you wish, we're not many of us, but we're sort of packed together. Here we are, God's people. And then through the week, we are transplanted out in the world among people that we are to love, people we are to pray for, and people with whom we are to share God's grace in the gospel. I think in some ways this begins to answer many of the difficult questions we face. about What about us versus them? What about How am I supposed to deal with unbelievers? We are to love, we are to pray for everyone. The God, God's grace is to be shared with everyone. And then the third principle, simply put, is read the whole story. Uh, I did not ask for a show of hands. I did not want to embarrass anyone. Uh, how can we claim to believe the Bible if we've not read it? Um, If we have not read it, then I think in many ways we cannot claim to believe it. Uh, One last thing. This goes back to the issue of women. And and with the pastors that I met with uh, in the Philippines, we've begun a program, a training program, where they can train the next generation of leaders. And the question came up, what about women? Are we to train women? And I think the agreement was, yes, that they should. And the example was brought up of churches in Hong Kong. There are thousands of Filipinos who work in Hong Kong as domestic helpers, as maids. 
And so if you were to go to an evangelical church in Hong Kong on a Sunday morning, you might see one or two men and just tons of women. Well, if you were to take the way some people take Paul here in 1 Timothy 2, it's going to be a pretty quiet service because the women are supposed to be quiet. No, read the whole story. And by God's grace, begin to have an understanding of what God has called the church to be. This is where God's grace has begun its work, but it doesn't stop here. Let's not be like Israel in the Old Testament to say, well, this is great. Look what God has done for us. But rather, this is what God has done for us and he wants to do for others. And we are to love them and we are to pray for them and share God's grace with them. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that to understand your word does not require our understanding alone, but the work of your spirit. Help us to understand that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we are to pray for everyone in all ways. And to share the gospel with them. And we who are your people are to know the revelation of yourself found in Scripture. We are to read the whole story. Otherwise, like the false teachers in Ephesus, we begin to follow myths and genealogies and go after controversies rather than your work, which is by faith. I ask personally, that in this generation there might be a revival of the knowledge of your word. And that that might be passed on to the next generation who will hold your your word precious and sweet. And will spend time reading it and studying it and then putting it into practice. I thank you that we could gather today, that you have gathered us to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please? And we'll sing the doxology together.